From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Do people like you? Just in general. People. Do they hear your name and think, oh, yeah, thumbs up? For most of us, this is a question to consider in the privacy of our own minds. You make it out of eighth grade, and generally there are not public reckonings over which people everybody likes and why. For politicians, however, it's a different story. Politicians have chosen to stay in eighth grade, making people like them as part of the job. But for politicians who are also women, likability can be an especially fraught front and center part of the job. In fact, it was right there in the first line of the first question that Senator Kirsten Gillibrand was asked at the first press conference after she declared her candidacy for president. I think a lot of people see you as pretty likable, a nice person, a reporter told her. But was that a good thing in a presidential candidate, he wondered. I got such a piercing headache as soon as I read that. The top of my head started to throb, and I was like, oh my God, we're doing, we're going to do this for two years. <laughs> That's Rebecca Traster, writer at large. And Rebecca's not the only one getting a headache. Because there's a double standard at play here, which is easy to recognize but hard to do much about. The exact qualities that might lead a person to, say, run for president, these are not qualities people have traditionally found appealing and fun in women. There are studies saying that the more ambitious a woman is, the more she's assumed to be off-putting, the more people don't like her. Well, that's pretty tough if you're if you're running for office. It's kind of at odds with the drive of a person who also wants to be president of the United States. I mean, there's just, it just gets so impossible to thread this needle. But here's the thing. You have to thread that needle. To get things done in politics, first you have to win, which means you've got to make people like you enough to actually go out and vote for you. I mean, it's absolutely true that there's a sexist element oh, yeah. to the way that we discuss whether a person is likable in politics or elsewhere. But that doesn't really—we can't really get around it. You, you do have to be likable. You have to be likable. I was talking about all of this with Stella Bugby, my boss and a voice for hard truths. There was that great McSweeney's headline that said, I don't hate women candidates, I just hated Hillary, and coincidentally, I'm starting to hate Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's that <laughs> thing of like... Coincidentally! <laughs> I don't know why. It comes over me, my hatred now of Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> um, when a person that you liked suddenly announces her ambition, she just becomes less likable. That's the sexism you can't deny. We'll see. Like, now that we have so many female candidates running, we can actually have a conversation about who's likable and who's not. Even if you want no part of that obvious sexism, you can't just throw the likable baby out with the sexist bathwater. Well, and even at the cut, yeah. someone um, in our Slack channel said something like, I don't need my politician to be likable. I just, you know, I'd be happy with a competent nerd running things. And... That's not true. Yeah. The competent nerds well, never win. They don't win. Like, that's not who wins. And I, I just felt that there was a certain level of, like, intellectual dishonesty or just pure, well, straight-up emotional yeah. dishonesty. Like, yes, of course, you want the most competent person to be running things. And you want those people to be running for office and all those things. But 
let's be real. Like, those people don't stand a chance. So, on one hand, as Rebecca Traster said, the 2020 presidential campaign is going to be a two-year-long headache. But, on the other hand, we're about to see something new. Something that might make it easier to talk about the women in the race without feeling like criticism is just coded sexism. We've never had enough women in a race to be able to extract the question of likability with relation to each other. There hasn't been a control yeah. group. Now there are a lot of women, so it's, it's not like, like it's just it's the one unlikable woman against all the like <laughs> super charismatic guys. Yeah. And now it's um, many women. Many women who all sort of have different present levels. differently. Yeah. yeah, have different foibles, have different charms, have different personalities, have different substantive policy ideas. Which might mean that we'll get an actual chance to discuss what likability could mean. Yeah. The default political landscape has generally been one woman in a big crowd of men. One woman who winds up defined by her gender. Who has to shoulder all the hopes and anxieties and prejudices that voters feel about women. In general. That's not a situation that makes it easy to be likable, even if you're someone people genuinely like. There's one woman who knows this better than almost anyone, a politician you might not have heard of before. Pat Schroeder, the former congresswoman from Colorado. Two things are true of Pat. First, she was a very successful politician who was in Washington for a long time. She got a lot done. Second, she could never escape the question of likability and all the contradictions that come with being a woman, being a leader, and being liked. Her story captures so much of what's been so hard about being a woman in American politics for the last 50 years. Pat Schroeder first ran for Congress in 1972. She was 32 at the time. She was married. She had two small children. She was also a lawyer who'd graduated from Harvard Law, where she was one of 15 women in a class of 500. And to give you some sense of the period we're looking at here— 1972 was a time when a married woman couldn't get a credit card without her husband's permission. This was a period when, in some pretty basic ways, women just weren't expected to be participating in public life. Here's Pat reflecting on her first run for office. When I announced for Congress, the newspaper said, Denver Housewife runs for Congress. I mean, they didn't even put my name in. And I kept thinking, well, yeah, I'm a housewife, but I'm also... Harvard lawyer. I also work at a university. It was very frustrating. She was anti-Vietnam War, and she ran a grassroots campaign against a Republican incumbent. Going into it, nobody thought she'd win. And we made, I mean, the cheapest commercials you've ever seen. Because I'm telling you, my average campaign contribution was $7.50, so we're talking cheap. And the posters were printed on bright pink, bright green, bright orange paper, Totally not red, white, and blue, because we were able to get those free. <laughs> Nothing looked like it was supposed to look like. You, could, you can't imagine. Pat didn't expect to win, but she did, by 8,000 votes. And she kept winning. She wound up serving in Congress for 24 years. She was the first woman on the House Armed Services Committee, where she tried to redirect defense spending into social programs. She worked for nine years on the Family and Medical Leave Act. You don't fire people for getting cancer. That's now legal in America. You can't fire someone for having a baby. That's now legal in America. That doesn't make sense to me. 
Which is the reason why pregnancy is a protected work status and you can take paid time off for bereavement. And she was also kind of a character. Here's Rebecca Traster again. She was known for having this really cutting sense of humor. For example, Pat gave Ronald Reagan a nickname that endured for years. Mr. Speaker, six years ago, I dubbed the Reagan presidency the Teflon presidency because nothing seemed to stick. When she was on the Armed Services Committee, she once cracked a joke where she said that Pentagon officials, she said if they were women, they'd always be pregnant because they never said no. (laughs) (laughs) People always asked her, how are you going to balance your work as a politician and as a mom? Mm Because she had young children when she went to Congress. And she'd say, I have a brain and a uterus and they both work. (laughs) You know, like, but that was kind of like, it was, I think, challenging. She was known sometimes as the wicked witch of the West and sometimes as the wicked bitch of the West. So when she would crack back at people, she believed that that contributed to a vision of her as fundamentally unable to take it or or being hostile. Hostile, or right. Yeah. Because um, I hear these jokes and I'm like, Pat Schroeder is well, it hilarious. Seems, it seems so like, Twitter-friendly or something. You know, it seems like right. the kind of thing that would serve you well on social media, perhaps. And also, we are, like, we're way away from, like, impeach the motherfucker, right? Like, this feels to me like G-rated, like, funny, sharp, kind of smart-ass yeah. sense of humor. You could see Pat trying to blunt that sharpness, Rebecca said. She also was quite famous for being incredibly cheerful. She would, when she signed her name, she would put smiley faces in her signature and like sort of used girlish language around things. Like she was very smiley. She was also um, criticized by young feminist journalists for being too girlish. Mm. So she was criticized for being too aggressive, for being too sharp with her humor, for being a smart aleck, and also for being too sweet and feminine. To explain the paradox of Pat's personality, Rebecca showed me a profile that ran in the New York Times in 1990. She is referred to in the Times as having shrewd, even lethal political savvy. Okay, so she's a killer. Yeah. And the Times also writes, it says, to critics, she has a hard look, a grin that is really a grimace, a nasal voice delivery through clenched jaws and eyes that disappear behind a squint. Her signature is too cute, her girlish celebrations ridiculous. They think of her as a lightweight. And this gets to the heart of the question of how can women be likable? Can they be likable, especially when they're in positions of political power or might want greater positions of political power? Can they be admired for being tough? Or are they hard and grimacing? Can they be liked for being approachable and friendly? Or are they lightweights? And what if they are both? How do you win? Coming up. The moment of Pat Schroeder's career that Rebecca's been thinking about for the last 32 years. That's after the break. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. This week, we're talking about likability and female politicians. In 1987, Pat Schroeder was one of 23 women in the House of Representatives. She was known both as the wicked bitch of the West, because she was from Colorado, and as a girly lightweight, because she did things like sign her name with a little smiley face in the pee of Pat. Heading into the 1988 Democratic primary, Pat was working for the frontrunner, Gary Hart, who was also from Colorado. But then Gary Hart dropped out of the race. 
he's photographed with a woman on a boat cheating, and he leaves the race in disgrace. A memorably named boat. Monkey business. So on. It's so weird. It was, I know. I, like, that's why the one I... fact I know about Gary Hart. So in the wake of the implosion of Gary Hart's campaign, Pat Schroeder decides that she might like to try to run for president. It's, she doesn't announce. She doesn't start a campaign. But she starts to explore the idea. And she sort of says to herself, I'm going to see if how much money I can raise over the course of the summer to see if I'm actually going to enter this campaign. The potential Democratic candidates that year were Pat plus a bunch of men. Pundits called them Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Polls kept showing that Americans might not even be willing to vote for a woman. But Pat kept pushing, trying to raise money. She realized donors would give men $1,000, then turn around and give her something like two fifty. She liked to joke that they must think she got a discount. In the end, it all came down to the money. And she realized she couldn't raise the money that she'd sort of said mm-hmm. was the limit. And so she announces that she's not going to launch her campaign. And she's frustrated by this. And yeah. she gives the press conference to announce this. Most of you have known that since 1972, I have tried to keep my commitment to accept I did watch this live when I was no 12 years old. The last time I saw this was when it happened. I've actually never seen this video before. Oh, man, can I watch it? Yeah. Can we watch it together? I learned a lot about America, and I learned a lot about Pat Schroeder. That's why I will not be a candidate for president. I could not figure out how to run and not be separated from those I serve. There must be a way, but I haven't figured it out yet. No, I know. I'm, I am now crying. Just so <laughs> it's sad. You are. It is. It is. It's very genuine. It's also sad that a woman can't figure out how to run for president. <laughs> and I could it's not sad. dare to turn every human contact into a photo opportunity. She's so genuine. Like, right, she's, it way, really, she's it feels really likeable. real. She's very likable. <laughs> right? Yeah, it feels, I, I mean, I wasn't sure what to expect. For me, I see that and I see, I see first of all, that she's like, She's a good politician, right? Like, like what she's saying is sort of meaningful and real and speaks to another structural reality of people who are firsts or who are anomalous kinds of candidates, which is the pressure to represent and the high bars that have to be set for people because you don't want to run a failed campaign. You don't want to screw up because you bear so much representative weight you realize that there's such, you have to hit a mark so hard that if you don't, you're going to let so many people down. And that, I mean, again, totally comprehensible why somebody would cry. I suddenly realized, oh, all these wonderful people that are here, you know, taking their summer off and been really helpful, and I've really let them down. That's Pat Schroeder. We called her up to talk about that day. She remembers it all vividly. And the way she tells it, she got through the speech, then got back to Congress. And I just felt awful. So I shed a few tears, but I wiped them away and finished the speech. But shed a few tears was not how this looked to the media. You would have thought I had a mental breakdown. I mean, the press then spent weeks discussing how how dare I shed some tears. 
This was before the days of 24-hour cable news. But even so, Pat and her tears were everywhere. She was parodied on Saturday Night Live as an unhinged emotional disaster. I'm Pat Schroeder. As you know, I was almost a candidate for president myself. And when I withdrew from the race, I cried. I would like to apologize. And I'd like to say, as a woman and a Democrat, I no longer respond to stressful situations that way. (laughs) Okay. I had several TV shows wanting me to come on and talk about what it was like to have a breakdown. And I was like, I I really don't think I had a breakdown. I'm not going to come talk about that. I still remember, oh, my God, there was some young editorial writer in the Post, Washington Post, that did this scathing editorial about how I had ruined it for women for the rest of her life. Here's how Rebecca remembers it. The thing I mostly remember is understanding that she'd done the wrong thing, like that she shouldn't have done that. And I wasn't critical. It wasn't that I was being critical of her. It was just the message like, oh, okay, note to self. Don't cry. (laughs) Yeah. You know? That sense that there's a wrong thing to do, a wrong way to be. That's what's made it so hard to be a woman in politics. Being likable has meant walking a tightrope of not seeming too nice or too mean, too girly or too masculine, too emotional or too cold, too serious or not serious enough. But surely that's changing, right? Surely, in a world where there are way more female politicians than in Pat's time, where gender roles have a little more wiggle room and we're more used to seeing women as people, Surely there's a little more room for error. Maybe we've even come so far that crying on TV qualifies as authentic and relatable. I wanted a professional opinion on this. I wanted to know how much had changed in the 32 years since that press conference. So I asked a pro. What would have happened if Pat Schroeder had cried in 2019? I mean, there's like just not a lot you can do. I don't think that much has changed. We still want an image of strength projected Jess Morales-Rocchetto is a digital organizer and the political director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's worked on campaigns with Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and Stacey Abrams. I'm trying to imagine if Kristen Gillibrand had decided not to run for president and cried. There would be so many, like, boo-hoo memes. I just don't think she would be celebrated for that. Now, if Beto, like, says that he's not going to run for president on a two-hour Facebook Live driving across America— I think that, like, he probably will cry, and then people will be like, so authentic, People will so be like, great. my calves are cramping, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like absolutely everything is different. But Jess does see a fundamental change in what it means to be likable, and in how politicians go about trying to make us like them. Think about the old days, or even just the pretty recent past. A lot of politicians, especially women, kind of gave you surface, right? Mm-hmm. They sort of gave you the politician version of them. That's just not what people want from elected officials anymore. They want to know you. They want to know about a lot of stuff that have nothing to do with politics. And, you know, kind of the number one rule in politics is you want to stay on message. But actually what people want is for you to go off message. The polished pantsuit version of likable seems like it won't work the way it used to. Instead, Politicians are now going for a version of Likeable that feels authentic in a new way. We actually did a whole episode of this podcast about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and we talked about how she was nailing this new version of likability. But it's something we started seeing all over the place during the midterms. 
some of these members of Congress are now giving the expectation that you'll be able to like eat dinner with your member of Congress. You know, she's going to Instagram live you while she makes mac and cheese. Or every time there's something that happens that's like trending on Twitter, they're going to respond. That is a like very unprecedented level of access. And I do think for older women who have kind of not grown up in the social media age, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. That's probably an understatement. We've seen Kamala Harris wiggling to Cardi B. We've seen Kirsten Gillibrand sharing recipes on the Notes app. Elizabeth Warren put a GoPro on her golden retriever. I, like, believe that Elizabeth Warren really likes her dog because they've been doing an extensive dog content vertical. Also um, the most likable dog, obviously. Of course. Of course. It was focus group. No worries. Um, <laughs> She just got that dog. I know that dog is very important to her. I'm not saying it's not an authentic expression of, of, of dog her love, and her yeah. dog relationship. Yeah. But, like, why can't Elizabeth Warren, as herself, as a person, like, be relatable enough that they need to, like, add the dog surrogate? The more women there are on the political stage, though, the harder it becomes to treat men as the norm. Jess says she thinks we're going to see less pressure on women to fit that norm and more appreciation for the things that women are doing to stand out like, maybe you should catch up to us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What are some examples of ways you've seen that play out? I, like, love this new feeling in the new Congress of, like, these women are all, like, fashion icons. In some ways, it's, like, the fourth wave, the fifth wave even. Yeah. Like, right? Like, eight, ten, yeah, who knows? Totally. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, we've extended so far into a new feminist future that it's cool to like how people dress. Jess said she saw this play out on Twitter just the other day with Ayanna Presley, the new congresswoman from Massachusetts. She got asked, like, I love that lipstick. What lipstick is that? And, she, you know, obviously it's Fenty Beauty Center lip paint. Like, of course it is. There is this rich conversation that we're about to have of, yes, I want her lipstick, but actually if she votes the wrong way, I don't care what kind of lipstick she wears and vice versa, right? Yeah. So. I do think about this in particular in relation to women. Like, if they're talking about your clothes and your shoes and your hair and your lipstick and they're not talking about your politics, like, is that the conversation that you want? The answer might be, yeah, because they came in through the door that way and then they, like, stayed for my tax policy. Yeah. It does still seem to be, like, there's this whole other piece of presentation that women, elected officials, have to figure out. Yeah, they have to figure out, but I almost wonder if— is that like an advantage? Yeah, almost? I feel like women are more used to policing their self-presentation. So in your mid-30s, by the time you got elected to Congress, you're like, listen, I figure this out <laughs> at the beginning. Especially if you came of age on Facebook. You're like, I figure this out in the first city council race. If everyone is more on view than ever before, and women are more used to being on view, maybe there's a way that skill becomes an advantage. And If it's presented with the right confidence and style, the femininity that might have been a problem for Pat Schroeder could actually be an asset. Something, dare I say, likable. Of course, that's the optimistic version. Access, authenticity, flexibility, all sounds great. But panopticon politics, seeing everyone all the time and all their mistakes, that also sounds like hell. I am interested to see kind of how long this continues, and for sure it will continue as long as there are more elected officials who understand this dynamic, which, like, not that many of them do. I almost wonder if, like, we should all just be likability accelerationists. Like, if likability is going to become impossible at a certain point, we'll just have to talk about policy because no one can sustain a personality 24 hours a day. Oh, please. From your mouth to God's ears. Like, that would be (laughs) so good. 
That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. And we want to hear from you. We are working on an episode about weed, and we want to hear about the secret things you like to do while high. Leave us a message and tell us all about your stoned activities, especially the weird ones. Our number is 413-247-4698. Again, 413-247-4698. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. We had more help from Peter Bresnan. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby, Nazanin Rafsanjani, and Alex Bloomberg, whom we recently advised not to watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mixing is by Emma Munger. Our music is by Haley Shaw. And our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra souser Special thanks to Annie Reese, Karen Finney, Tara McGowan, Bria Smith, and the House of Representatives Office of the Historian for their 2015 oral history of Pat Schroeder. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. 